This podcast is sponsored by Merion Global Investors, bringing together the art and science of investing. Hello and welcome to The Spectator Podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast. So, Laurie is backing up in Kent, a Mars bar shortage and no more Roman city breaks. These are just some of the things that we've been warned might happen if we get to a no-deal Brexit. But what will actually happen? I speak to two people who somewhat disagree. Plus, we also look at whether China is a greater force to be reckoned with than Russia. And finally, we look at why the British are obsessed with aristocratic sex scandals. There are plenty of mixed messages thrown around when it comes to a no-deal. And in this week's cover piece, Ross Clark weighs up the pros and the cons. It's a fairly neutral piece, but I'm joined by two people who aren't. Lord Lilly is one of the leading advocates of so-called clean Brexit. Ian Dunn, editor of politics.co.uk and the author of Brexit, What the Hell Happens Next, says it would be a monumental act of self-harm. Welcome both. So Peter, even last year, Brexiteers were warning that no deal might be a dangerous option for Britain. But you now seem rather gung-ho. Can you explain to us why that is? I'm not gung-ho, but the fears then were based on the knowledge then, which was that no preparations were known to have been made, and if no preparations were made, there would be problems. Now we know preparations are being made. All fears relate either to the belief that we will stop things coming into the country, which is absurd. We won't. HMRC have said that they will have no additional checks at Dover beyond those that they have at present, because they only check uh, lorries to look for illegal contraband, cigarettes, drink, which hasn't paid duty, drugs and illegal immigrants, and the risk of that will not change. But the whole thesis, therefore, was that there'd be problems in Calais, which would back up across the Channel. That was blown apart yesterday by the president of the Calais and uh, Boulogne ports, who said on the Today programme, to their obvious annoyance, that the same would apply in Calais. There will be no additional checks, there will be no delays, their priority is to ensure the smooth flow of trade through Calais. They're terrified of loss of trade to Zeebrugge, Amsterdam and Rotterdam. And he was very upset that the British government is going to take some of their trade away by hiring ferries to go to Ostend and other ports. So the whole belief that there's going to be chaos in Kent is now absolutely blown apart. It is not going to happen. I'm prepared to bet a large sum of money payable to Mencap, my favourite charity, to anyone who disagrees with me. Ian, <laughs> you've warned that a no-deal Brexit is a really bad idea, so I suppose you've got a slightly different view on that. I do. I mean, to, to take up on, I mean, obviously, you know, from the very beginning, I, I wrote a book on Brexit sort of about two years ago now, and the very first thing that was said to me by expert after expert, whether it was in health, whether it was in aviation, whether it was in trade... Whereas really anywhere, uh, especially in haulage, they would always say, look, the thing that absolutely cannot happen beyond anything else, beyond Brexit, soft Brexit, hard Brexit, whatever, is that we have no deal. That is the thing that you just simply cannot allow to happen if you are any kind of developed, uh, sensible country. And I I have to take issue, I think, with, with what was said in terms of the Calais port. I mean, it was an interesting interview that he gave, and I understand why you're raising it. He immediately afterwards put out some information via his meeting with the Road Haulage Association, where they asked him, well, by that then, do you mean that you are not going to be asking to check the entry and exit customs arrangements, the the certificates that, that haulage has to have, and the security and safety inspection documents? 
Now, his answer to that was, no, of course, we do have to check that. He's saying we won't check regulatory. We won't do regulatory checks on manufacturing. We will do, he said, regulatory checks on agriculture, and they will check the customer certification. Now, that's a major deal. When you certificate for customs, you have to do that for each shipment. Now, some of these lorries carry thousands of things. Sometimes you have a lorry. It's very easy. It's just full of oranges. So it's just one customs declaration. Sometimes you have lorries, very often, in fact, that have tens of thousands of items on them. Bottle of wine for me, book for you, chair for your dad. In that case, you need one of these documents for each of those shipments. The document runs to about 30 pages. We have no practice in this country in business of filling out those forms. They're quite complicated. Then you look... I will finish now. I'm sorry. I know I've been talking for a little while. Then you look at like you look at the UCL's traffic report that he did uh, one year ago for the Department of Transport. This is a secret report. It's not really put out. It's not Project Fear. It's only been uncovered now. But they look that if we have an 80 second increase in checks, which is easily accounted for by the kind of checks that we just talked about in terms of customs, you would get total shutdown of the roads in this country. They call it total failure. And in that case, no, I'm not sanguine about it at all, even on that basis, on the basis of what was said. I think it's very troubling indeed. Well, you admitted that your evidence was based up on two years ago before any preparations have been made, and it's a shame you haven't changed your mind since the preparations have been made. <laughs> the, uh, the Calais authorities are, are relying on uh, expecting there to be a, a two-minute checking process. They have to check the passport of the driver already. And, you know, I go back and forth the whole time, and often <laughs> the delays are uh, significant. But he said quite explicitly, if anyone hasn't properly got their form, then they've made parking available to put them to one side and consider them. They're not going to allow uh, jams to back up across the channel. And that's quite explicit. Of, of course, these forms are a blasted nuisance. I would, I'm against having to fill in forms if you don't have to. But that is a factor of us being outside the customs union, which we've promised to do at the general election and in the referendum. And that people have to get used to. You say we've no experience. Of course, this is precisely what happens on all our trade with all non-EU countries. It happens. There are no hold-ups at Southampton, which is predominantly non-EU trade. And it's more difficult where there are lorries, and as you say, lorries with lots of stuff in the back. They will undoubtedly have to get used to it. As he said, they are having an educational process on the lorries going through the ferries at present. You can't sort of deny, on the basis of what he may have said privately, what he said publicly and what everybody else has said and what HMRC has said, there will be no extra checks and there will be no delays at the border because they will give priority to flow over compliance. To be, to be clear, it's completely public, he said, that we will obviously be doing these, these customs checks. Um, and HMRC have said, yeah, we can try and keep it to the minimum. What they said was that they require about five to seven years. Now, if you want to do this thing, I don't think it's a very sensible idea. I mean, it seems like something that would deteriorate Britain. But if you were to do it, you need to come up with deliverable timescales. Now, the weeks that we have left simply are not deliverable. The way that we operate in terms of food in Europe, we've heavily relied on it, is just-in-time production. Okay? For a long time, it goes for manufacturing as well. Factories are no longer the home of what goes on. They are a central hub in a production process. Now, in there, it is just simply no point comparing what goes on with our imports from the US or from Canada to what we do with our largest and, most importantly, our closest partner, that things are designed to happen immediately. And when you come up with stoppages in the system, 
you will very quickly see that break down. Now, I do think you can do this thing if you were to say to yourself, look, we've got about five years on it. If you say we're going to do this in weeks, that is, I mean, it's just crazy, man. Well, we've said that if there are problems in initially, the vehicles will be waved through. Uh, I've suggested, actually, we should suspend all tariffs for the first two months across the world, not just to the EU. Well, you'd uh, have to, wouldn't you, under yeah, WTO? Yeah, so so that, that could be done for the first few months if there are any difficulties. I don't think there will be. Peter, are, we, are we not somewhat relying on the goodwill of the French you know, to oh, honour honor their word? You know, with uh, the it's, not, it's not goodwill. They're not doing it to please us. Not doing it to uh, even for the joy of having our uh, exporters getting through. It's because they're terrified of losing, losing trade from Calais. Calais is just about to expand. They're building a whole new port. And they aghast at the thought, just the, the point they're increasing their capacity, they're going to lose trade to uh, Austin, Zeebrugge, Rotterdam. And they're very explicit, that's what they say in their press releases, that is our priority, to avoid losing trade to other ports, and uh, that's why they will see that it all goes smoothly. There are a lot of people who've got a vested interest in keeping the scare stories going, but I just can't see why you would. Why they, the people who run the ports must know most about you, you the ports. Have to, I have to say, it's, I, I do struggle with this thing of scare stories. So I've sat there. Let's say if you take technesium, right? Technesium is the radioactive isotope that we use to screen for prostate cancer, for heart disease, for thyroid disease. There's hundreds of thousands of people in this country that use it. It's a half life of six hours. Hey, molybdenum, which is obviously the parent isotope, has a half life of 33. I beg your pardon, of 66 hours. Now every second that that thing is held up. It loses its capacity to help humans. And after a certain point, you can't use it because, of course, you get the effect of of the radioactivity without any of the medical benefits. Now, you talk to those guys and they genuinely will sit there with you. These are senior doctors. These are not hysterical people. And they will say that people are going to die if you do this because we cannot stockpile this material. So, again, I have to say, are you really suggesting they just sit there, they watch the BBC... They have a complete fear and just start spewing out all of this nonsense because that, to me, doesn't seem tenable. And when I'm presented with them or a series of Tory MPs that it happens to coordinate with the political aim that they have had, I'm going to go with the doctors. Well, I, I'm going to go with the port authorities who say there aren't going to be delays. If there were delays, obviously that would have an effect. Now, let's look at history. In 2015, for 23 near consecutive days, Calais was blockaded by the fishermen. The Ferries, uh, the, the trains were impeded by the immigrants getting over the fences. We had 7,000 lorries backed up in Kent. We had delays of 36 hours. What happened? Who died? Tell us. Very what, strange what, what Justin t- that you've well, just made. This is precisely the fear. We've had a case study of what happens of when things have, can't get blockages. through Cali. You have blockages. What you do not have is an entire country overnight changing a trading relationship but, but, that it has had for four decades, yours, yours, so it's quite absurd to make the comparison. Well, it's not a comparison, because you're saying that the result of this change will be chaos in Kentish roads. We had that. We know what it's like. I mean, it's a bit did like a saying to a man that's having a heart attack that he'll be just, fine because he broke his arm once and he didn't die then. No, on the contrary. Oh, if you're saying it's going to be worse than then. But if you're saying a few seconds delay is a serious matter, we had 36 hours delay. Look, read the report on our Operation Stack. It goes into detail. Did a single car company in this country have interruption of production? I don't know. They found ways around it. I mean, is there anything that worries you about no-deal Brexit? (laughs) Yes. I mean, I would prefer not to have tariffs. I think tariffs are the issue, and I would prefer, therefore, to have a free trade deal with our European uh, neighbours. They did offer that on the 7th of March this year and repeated on the 4th of October. The issue 
the, the, why the government didn't even bother to re- reply to the offer, as far as I know, is that they assumed that it didn't include Ireland. We should revive it, but say we've got to get rid of the Irish Protocol and replace that by a commitment, which all three parties have given, that in the event of no deal, there will not be checks at the border or border posts in Ireland. We deal with cross-border trade at present, where there's a, there is smuggling of duty-paid goods, which are different rates either side of the border, VAT, which is zero on exports and 20% on domestic and so on. We deal with that without border posts. We control flow of drugs, which um, fuel the, you know, actually finance the paramilitaries. So it's a really serious matter. Nobody says that you have to have border posts or border checks to deal with those problems. We could certainly control any illicit flow of Dyson vacuum cleaners without having border posts. Okay. So I mean, uh, this is it's quite basic stuff, but I guess I'd better explain it. So the way that regulations work in a country, and the way that law works, is that you pass a law, let's say you pass a law against the use of chemicals in children's toys, or the way that electromagnetic equipment works in a car, and the way that it might affect uh, people with sort of heart monitors or something. And then you have to enforce that law. And products from outside need to be checked to make sure that they come up to this standard. And there is a very simple reason for this. Like, imagine if today... A child in Britain eats contaminated meat, contaminated beef burger, and he dies. Now, very obviously, the next day, we're going to start asking questions about where did it come from? Where was it shipped? What was the factory? Where was the animal reared? Now, if that meat came from overseas, you need to make sure that you have some kind of legal operating system that allows you to assess that. Now, if it is a different jurisdiction and you are doing no checks... You have no control. And it seems to me that that doesn't quite chime with the motto that you guys had when you were campaigning in the referendum. No, I mean, you're quite right. They have to be. But do the checks and controls have to be at the border? At present, we have the traces system, yes, as you know. agricultural goods, they do have to be at the border. No, and they, they are they everywhere. They have to be in the vicinity of the border. No, no. No, for agriculture... For everything else, you're right. For manufacturing, border, absolutely, you can do it. Border inspection agricultural posts. goods, they have to be on the border, and that is the same everywhere. Well, the border inspection posts, theoretically, have to be on the border. The one at Calais is going to be 12 kilom- uh, kilometres behind Calais. The one at Rotterdam is 40 kilometres away from the main port. Uh, so th- you can have these border inspection posts at a some distance under EU law, and, and that's accepted, and everybody knows that. Now, at present under the traces system, if you ship animals from Ireland from you know, one EU country to another. You have to get a veterinary certificate before you do it. When we're a separate country, you'll have to get a different veterinary certificate before you do it, but it won't be hugely different. And, uh, of course, uh, you, you've got to have a kind of ability to trace things. And it's not just animals. If um, How do you intend to do that if you have nothing on the border? Because at the moment, you, what you are suggesting are, are you, suggest, are you we're, suggesting we're taking these no, products no, hang on, you with no me checks whatsoever? Well, the checks usually come at the point of sale. The idea yeah, that that's a separate jurisdiction. The, no, for instance, if if China sends electric kettles to France, the customs man doesn't carry out a check on the electric circuitry of the of the electric kettle. If there are any doubts about it, then it will come to light, and the trading standards people will do it. There will have to be a certification available, which the Chinese company will get from a certification body, but they're not actually all inspected at the border. I think we've had probably enough on the border stuff. But in, is, uh, it, you're, mean, you're almost acting like this is fascinating <laughs> for everyone yeah. involved. Sure, everyone's delighted to hear about Chinese cattles. But um, <laughs> in, do you think it's fair to say that you, your position is that we can't leave the EU just because the, it's too much of a bureaucratic nightmare? I wouldn't leave the EU because it's a terrible idea. I mean, this is, what we're talking about right now is no deal, which mm. is the worst of all the bad But if we could get over the border the issue, do you think there are some things that... 
you know, could be a positive about No Deal. No Deal is a catastrophically Nothing stupid thing to do. Nothing good can come of No Deal. You can make an argument, I think, for in Brexit, if you have to be really desperate, you can try mm. and find reasons to do it. I mean, you could sort of start saying, you know, common agricultural policy is not particularly good. There's bits and pieces that you might change. Of course there is in every political system. It's never like everything's perfect. So, of course, you have bits and pieces that you would like to change mm. that you would do differently if you, if you were outside of it. I get that. In terms of No Deal, that is... The magnitude of the stupidity of the proposition is so astonishing that genuinely it shocks me as a British patriot that it has taken some sort of mainstream position in our society. I am every day genuinely shocked that this thing is being considered. And would you be as shocked if we get to no deal and there isn't quite as dramatic fallout as you're predicting? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll make the same gamble that you made earlier on the charity giving. I'll give mine to the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants and we'll both do 50 quid. Oh, cheaper the price. Um, <laughs> well, I, how much were you expecting me to do? I was going to say, Mr. Hundred, I got a thousand. I'm on a journalist's salary. Thank uh, you very much. Yes. We'll hold you to both of those, by the way. What are the merits of a uh, WTO exit? First of all, we keep £39 billion. Oof. That is, so rather than crashing out, we're cashing in. That's not a bad thing to do. <laughs> it's, it's piddly figures compared to what but we're talking about. Billion. It might to, as well be. My friend on a journalist's salary, £39 billion <laughs> no, is a I, I lot will do of very well off it, but for a country in terms of assessing okay. its entire okay. trading relations, talking about £39 billion is not a very Well, hang on. The do. tariffs our exporters will pay per annum are £5 billion if they are outside the EU and face the EU economy. So £39 billion is not trivial compared with £5 billion, I would have thought. Secondly, it ends uncertainty. Uncertainty, well, all businesses face uncertainty. <laughs> they don't know what their competitors are going to do. They don't know what their suppliers are going to do and so on. But the worst kind of uncertainty is an uncertainty that's going to end at a specific date when a decision is made by the authorities. And that's what we've faced ever since the 26th of June. People have been putting off decisions until they know what the outcome is going to be. On the 29th of March, if we leave without a withdrawal agreement, they will know what the situation is. Some will like it, some will not like it. But then they will be able to get on and deal with it. They'll invest to take advantage of opportunities or to cope with problems. And it will end uncertainty economically. It will end uncertainty politically. We can get on and discuss more important things than the terms of leaving, how we use the powers we get back once we've left. The third advantage is that it leads to uh, all parties concerned having to resolve the Irish border issue without border posts. All have said they will do so. Varadkar has said, if we leave without a deal, there will not be border posts or border checks. The EU have said, likewise, they will not require border posts or border checks. We've said under no circumstances will we have border posts or border checks. So we will all cope with it administratively by administrative processes, electronic submission of documents and so on, away from the border. And then we can have a straight free trade deal between Britain and the, U and the EU. And uh, likewise, we'll be free to have trade deals with the rest of the world. We'll be invited to join the Trans-Pacific Partnership as the only non-Pacific nation. That's a huge area. We're invited. The EU isn't. <laughs> so uh, we're invited to have a... Uh, I'm sorry, actually, just sniggering the whole I'm time. Sorry, it doesn't it's just so preposterous. I mean, the what is, is preposterous the, the about is being close to where we I'm are? I'm saying with the EU that as area well as is very far away. Why not so it have is both? Worth less to our trade. Why not have both? I, I'd have to take you up Why on not have both? Argument. So the EU came up and said, "We have got our own No Deal prep, which they're doing unilaterally. They're not going to do. It, they're not going to do it with us." 
And part of it was they gave us something on aviation. You can go to and from, but you can't go within Europe. It's a, it's a major change, but it's, it's better, than, it's better change, than having... It's a minor change. No, I'm sorry. What it proportion is extremely of flights do cabotage? It's, we have British companies that were able to fly between any two European cities and are now unable to do so. No, when no, it no. comes to haulage, you have haulage certificates, right? And these basically, I think it's 2,000 of the 40,000 haulage lorries that we have going into Europe would get those certificates. Oh, that's been no, no, sold we, we, too, we, Exactly. So the EU has now said, we are going to give you this and we're going to continue as we were before. How long for? Nine months. Nine during months. That nine now months. you say that Hang we on, suddenly... No, no, one moment, sir. One months, moment, sir. You said we said... suddenly have certainty and yet the provisions that are in place on aviation is 12 months, on haulage is nine months. It is an EU chokehold. It is not freedom. It is putting ourselves entirely at their mercy. And I find it quite baffling why you would propose it. But, well, uh, I don't believe that the EU are quite as malicious as you seem to think and want nonetheless to put our They're fate in They're a self negotiating part. Uh, exactly, exactly. Uh, they've said on Hauliers that there is a problem because the number of licences for the current year have already been agreed by the body that sets them. So they've said the EU will allow us to continue to trade, Hauliers well, to continue to operate until the end of the year. And during that the year, they, along with us, will lobby the organisation that gives these licences, not just to us, but to 38 countries, to increase the number to uh, accommodate all the hauliers involved. But I think it's uh, going remarkably well, and uh, I am <laughs> surprised it so that it's the, <laughs> it's the European Europhars like you who most believe that the EU will carry out a sort of scorched-earth policy. No, I, be- I believe it's a self-interested economic actor. Exactly. Which, which is exactly how, and and how that, it operates. And it has operated over the last two years in a way that makes sure that its own interests oh, are represented. Absolutely. It's taken advantage of our own fair. negotiating confusion. So I do not look at it as this wonderful angel in the wings, nor as a, a demon in the back. It is simply a self-interested economic actor, and the kind of behaviours that I'm describing are the sorts that that sort of organisation would take. Yeah, and I entirely agree. And I think they're very sensible. And we can we negotiate. We a moment of agreement. We have to close We it have to stop it there. <laughs> that was Ian Dunn and Peter Lilly. And we've actually had to cut that discussion slightly shorter. So if you'd like to listen to the full version, it will be available shortly on Coffeehouse Shots. Hello, I'm Dominic Green, Life and Arts Editor of Spectator USA. I'm inviting you to join us on our weekly Life and Arts podcast, The Green Room. This week, I'm casting the pod with author Robert Kaplan, talking history, geography, literature and American empire to mark the 25th anniversary of Kaplan's influential essay, The Coming Anarchy. So join us on Spectator USA. Next, while Russia may have been behind the Skripal poisonings, the Trump election and Syria's continuing civil war, should the British government be more concerned with China's rise? Brendan Sims and Casey Lynn write in this week's issue that we should be, and sooner rather than later, the government must decide what its China policy should be. I'm joined by MP Tom Tugendhat, Chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, and Professor Kerry Brown, a China academic at King's College London. So Kerry, Brendan asked the question, does China pose a greater threat than Russia? Do you think he's right to frame the debate like that? Well, Russia's economy is... 8% of the size of the Chinese economy. Russia is 150 million people. China is 1.4 billion. And China is a far greater geopolitical actor. So structurally, I mean, it's completely obvious that China is a bigger challenge. I I mean, just because of the size. And whether it's a bigger threat, well, size might mean a bigger threat. It depends how you interpret it. But it's certainly got greater aspirations. So yes, I think it is a far, far deeper and 
broader problem because it's not a European power in the way that Russia probably is. It's actually very, very different in terms of its value systems. So a whole host of reasons means it is a bigger challenge. Tom, do you see it that way as well? Look, I agree absolutely. Kerry's completely right. And and there's also a a fundamental difference, which is that uh, Russia is a broken and failing economy uh, based on a kleptocratic mafia elite. China is not. China is a real state with uh, government and the ability to act like a government uh, around the world and domestically. And unlike Russia, which is just trying to break the rules because it's no longer able to have any real influence, China is trying to reshape them. And that poses some very real challenges, not just for the UK, but actually for everybody who has prospered and grown peacefully in the last 70 years of, uh, of global structures. Carrie, I mean, people always ask the question, what does China want? I mean, what do you think it wants with regards to the West? Well, it works within international systems and it works within international norms, but it's a norm entrepreneur. I mean, it's trying to create a system in which it feels it gets what it wants. So it's a very self-interested actor and it has the power to enforce a lot of what it wants now and to contest and to basically question uh, in a very subtle way sometimes, in some other ways, a very brutal way, a very overt way, the Western norms. So Russia, I think, acts differently. It's more of a norms contester, but it's a smaller player. I think it's parasitical on the international system, whereas China is actually deeply embedded in the international system, as is trying to create through the Belt Road Initiative and the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank and others, a world according to Chinese values. And that's a huge difference to what uh, has existed since the end of World War II. Tom, obviously, we've had quite a lot of Russia, Russian aggression, certainly last year. But I mean, China's also being fairly aggressive in its own near abroad. Do you, I mean, do you think that should worry worry the West? Well, I think uh, any of us, anybody who's been to uh, Australia or New Zealand recently will have heard very clearly uh, that uh, Chinese influence in those countries has been similar to, but actually much greater than Russia's attempt to influence Europe. And uh, there are many countries in Southeast Asia who are. Uh, raising very, very strong concerns uh, with uh, the UK about China's actions in that region and, and its attempt at, at dominance. And so I think there are there are some real areas of concern, but we've got to look at how we work with China because, as, as Kerry says, the, China's attempting to rewrite the rules. And it's not unreasonable for a country that, for various reasons since 1945, has not been a particularly active world player to seek to have influence now that it is the second and perhaps soon to be the largest economy in the world. That is a reasonable aspiration. The question is, how much influence can it have without destroying the system that enabled it to prosper? Okay, I mean, are there particular aspects of Chinese influence in Britain that we should be particularly concerned about? Well, the most important at the moment is Huawei. I mean, China's technology is good. It's innovative. Huawei's technology is being used in the Xinjiang area of China. I mean, that's pretty clear. Artificial intelligence is increasing. I mean, China has great capacity. So with the 5G sort of rollout in the UK, as I understand it, I'm not a techie, but I think there's like a million lines of code. Can you really believe that, you know, if Huawei's a partner, they're not going to... I mean, it's natural. I mean, if you're driven by technological and commercial and other interests as a partner like Huawei, they have links to the Chinese state because they're in telecoms. They couldn't exist in China without links to the Chinese state in that sector. It's a sensitive sector. So those sort of areas are really, really difficult to deal with. And I suspect, like in Australia and America, uh, there will be big boundaries here. I mean, we're more liberal in some ways, but I can't really see that while we will be able to operate here in the way it probably has with older technologies. And Tom, do you think we're sort of more happy to turn a blind eye to China because of the amount of investment that's coming into this country? 
I think we have been, and I think in some areas that's been a mistake, and I think 5G is a classic example of that. But there's another example, which is in our educational institutions, the spread of the Confucius Institutes has not been a voice of cooperation Can with the Chinese government. Can you what these institutes are? Well, these are, these are theoretically cultural institutions, but they're not. They're an outreach of the international branch of the Communist Party of China, and they are used to do propaganda and influence, which is fine on one level. Advertising the benefits of uh, Chinese culture is a perfectly reasonable thing to do. But what they're also doing is they're spying on Chinese students, and there are many Chinese students in the United Kingdom, and they, are, and they then feed back to threaten parents in China of students who may not be towing the party line. Kerry, Tom just mentioned New Zealand and Australia, and Brendan also mentioned it in his piece as an example of a country that has sort of stood up slightly to China. I mean, do you think Britain needs to look to Australia and New Zealand as well? Yeah, I mean, I lived in Australia for three years from 2012, so it wasn't quite as uh, frenetic as it is now. I mean, the big difference between Britain and Australia is that China is by way and far Australia's biggest trading partner. I believe for the UK, it's probably sixth or seventh. I mean, it's nowhere near anything like the scale. So that makes it really, really different. There is an emotion in Australia about China. It can be very negative, it can be very positive. I mean, there is an emotion, though. I think the issue in the UK is, and I mean, it'd be interesting to hear Tom's view on this, I don't think we know what we feel about China. It's never really mattered. We're kind of a little bit indifferent and complacent. I mean, you know, there's an elite that have dealt with Hong Kong, and of course, they've got a lot of knowledge in our military and civil service and educational institutions, and then, boom, there's nothing. So, I mean, I'll give you one statistic that always does my head in. Last year, doing China studies in all universities in the UK, enrolments were 255 people. And that is a fall from the year before. So, at the moment, of all the universities in the UK, complete enrolments are about 1,400. That is staggering when you think that there are 130,000 Chinese students at the moment in the UK. We only have 1,400 people in the UK studying China. We've got about six or 7,000 actually in China studying, so that's good, I mean, doing language and stuff. But, I mean, that's a big asymmetry, and that's got to be improved. Look, I think, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think not having... Uh, the knowledge about a, a major international player like China is a is a mistake for the United Kingdom. And uh, my brother actually is a Chinese expert, so uh, and speaks Chinese. So I'm I'm aware of the Chinese uh, educational programs in the UK, and it is something that uh, we've got to look very hard at because the wake up call for the Australian government uh, was really came under Kevin Rudd and has since uh, got more serious. Is a very real one. This is, you know, if if you are an Australian politician today, foreign influence and attempts to influence with finances, with campaigners, and so on, is very real, and that's why Australia was so robust in rejecting Huawei into the Australian uh, industry, for example. Kerry, you just said that we don't often know how Britain feels about China, but do we know what China feels about Britain? I mean, there's obviously a long mm. and not always happy history there. Well, yeah, I mean, I think surveys show that we're admired because of our cultural and soft power assets. And I mean, we have surveyed Chinese. I mean, there was a um, University of Nottingham project a few years ago that surveyed what Chinese people think of Britain. And I mean, it's on the whole positive. But I don't know, there's not a survey data, there's not a lot of survey data about what we think about China. There isn't Australia, there isn't, um, the United States has just issued some, and it's, I mean, it's complicated. In the UK, what you get is quite positive ideas about Chinese investment, because there's not a lot of investment here, so it's quite positive. But as more comes, we're going to have to find out quite quickly what we do think about China. I suspect it's going to be some big investment in infrastructure that comes from China. There'll be a problem, and then we will probably immediately find out 
whether there are issues about public opinion here. We need to know what we really think about China and what we feel about China, and that will only come uh, through what sorts of engagement we have with China in the near future. Just finally, Tom, in his piece, Brendan also says that by the time the West finds itself in open conflict with China, which is quite a daunting prospect, we'll have lost our relative advantage. I mean, do you think that seems a fair concern of his? It's a, it's a reasonable point. I think there's a, there's a real question for China as well. I mean, we, what we're watching in China is a, is a straight competition between old men with tech against young men with ideas, young men and women with ideas. And it's, we don't know who's going to win. Uh, the artificial intelligence programs and security institutions that are being set up by very old men of the Communist Party are extraordinary. But they are facing against a massive population of young people many of whom are beginning to think very differently about the struggles that led China to be in the current situation. So the idea that China is phenomenally stable, I think, is also not true. And certainly when it uh, rounds up, as it has done millions of people in places like Urumqi, and is storing up enormous problems of Islamist movements within its own populations, it is asking a lot of everybody to be confident that China's stability will endure. Kerry and Tom, thank you very much. Hello, I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and I present the weekly books podcast at which you'll hear lively discussions from the best and most interesting critics and writers and authors out there, from Charlotte Rampling to Daniel Dennett, all the way past to Michael Morpurgo. I very much hope you'll give us a try. Just search for Spectator Books on the iTunes store. And last, sex. Eddie Davenport made his millions in the late 80s organising decadent parties for wealthy teens. The media and public loved reporting on them, and it seems that we still do love hearing about posh sex parties. Davenport's been in the news again because a party he allegedly organised on Park Lane led to a fatal stabbing. From the Profumo scandal to the Denning report, we just can't seem to get enough of Aristos going off the rails. Cosmo Landersman writes about this strange obsession in this week's issue, and he joins me now together with Sophia Money Coots, author and Sunday Telegraph columnist. So, Cosmo, why do you think people are quite so obsessed with the idea of posh people having sex? I think English people are obsessed by posh people, generally speaking. And if you can bring sex into the story, I think that adds a special ingredient. There is an idea that somehow posh sex is better than ordinary prol sex. It's, you know, it's more refined. It has more luxurious surroundings. It's much more attractive. It's not sleazy. It's kind of, you know, very tasteful and classy. And can you tell us a bit about these parties that you talk about in your in your piece, Eddie Davenport's ones? Well, I've, uh, I haven't been to them myself, but I've spoken to many people who have. Every person I've spoken to has been completely disappointed. The promises that you go to these luxury these luxury events with these very top notch people, and it's all very you know, it's like eyes wide shut, glamorous orgy scenes, a beautiful mass, and the, the room smells bad, the people are very unattractive, the toilets don't work, and basically you want to get the hell out of there as fast as possible. Fai, do you, I mean, do you have any experience with these parties? <laughs> yes, I have to say, um, for w- work purposes, while I worked at Tatler, I got sent to Torch Garden, and it was on a barge on the Thames, a barge that luckily you could get off, we weren't sort of marooned in the middle of the river. But yes, I went in a latex catsuit, and and was writing a piece about posh S&M, so I thought I should, you know, chuck myself in at the deep end and took a friend of mine. And it was kind of extraordinary. I mean, yes, there were people having sex, doing all sorts of things. We sat at the bar having our Prosecco sort of quite politely. But I have to say, I didn't see, you know, 
Prince Harry circling <laughs> the barge, I have to say. I mean, it's quite hard to tell whether people are posh or not when they've got, you know, latex and gas masks on. How do you know? So maybe they were there. I don't know. And also know. the thing is about when once somebody takes off all their clothes, they're just another body with, you know, yes. wobbly bits yeah. and hairy bits and <laughs> yeah, other exactly. bits. Whether and posh so or not. Posh, whether posh or not. So how do you, you know, wh- wh- where's the benefit? Yeah. I mean, you, you talk about Eddie Davenport and how he was quite clever at sort of marketing these parties. I mean, do you think do you think that was his trick, really, that he sort of convinced everyone oh, yeah. they were very posh? He did. He was very clever. He spotted a gap in the market. He realized that the, the, the kind of sex party was very much passe, was considered very suburban, these sort of, you know middle class dated affairs or rock and roll he made he took the he took the very idea of the sex orgy and dragged it up market and created the illusion that this was something superior for people of more refined and superior taste and social standing so in that sense he was quite clever and do you, I mean, do you think people just love the idea of a rake in society who's sort of organizing parties like this Marquis de Sade sort of yeah, exactly <laughs> Well, I think there's a bit of a double standard that's always existed about this. When posh people do decadent things, it's kind of, you know, alluring. It's it's attractive when working class proletariat people do it. It's a social problem. You know, mm. they drink too much. Yeah. They take too many drugs. But when posh people do it, it's, oh, it's kind of glamorous and interesting. And there's also, I mean, there are these teenage posh parties that you mentioned yes. in your piece. I mean, is that sort of a separate phenomenon, do you think? I think, as Cosmo, or? you say in your piece, it happens... Whether, whether you're posh and 15 and snogging at a party or whether you mentioned you know it goes mm. on in council estates you're 15 and you're just snogging aren't you I remember quite fondly some of my teenage parties actually desperately hoping for a snog <laughs> and never really managing it it's not too late but I still sort of remember you know thinking oh maybe someone will ask me to dance but I think those are quite but different teenagers orgies. that's just what teenagers do all yeah, the time exactly. if these were teenagers from privileged backgrounds and black ties and taffeta that's what caused the storm mm. You know, but this happens, as I said in the piece, this happens every weekend, you know, amongst ordinary people, more so than teenagers. Cosme, you also say in your piece that genuinely posh people don't go to these parties because they wouldn't want to pay to go to one of them. I mean, well, as I say in the piece, posh people never pay to go anywhere except to a ball or to a charity. And if you had a sex orgy for, you know, (laughs) cancer research, yes, they would go to that, but they wouldn't go, they wouldn't go to anything else. And I also say that posh people can't play by the social rules and etiquette of the modern you know, sex party, like you know, killing kittens or whatever, where there's strict rules. You can't talk to the women, you can't touch the women, you have to wear your mask. Posh people, they're, they're not going to obey those rules. They just, you know, it's, not, it's never going to happen. Can I just say one thing on the killing kittens thing, which I love? I've interviewed Emma Sale, who mm. set it up, who was a, a school friend of Kate Middleton's before. And she's great. She's amazing. She's a very focused businesswoman. Mm. She's, you know, done very well with it. But I remember interviewing, I'd never been, but I remember interviewing someone who had been to a killing kittens party. And she said that her overriding memory was the stench of chlorine from all the jacuzzis, <laughs> which I so loved. Well, I always think they must smell weird, detail. these parties. Yes, yeah. I mean, I've never been to one, but they That's do sound like... told you all, I think, you need <laughs> <Yeah>. to know. <laughs> and do you think it's just a particularly British thing or I mean do other countries also I mean do, do they have the same thing in America I don't think they have it in America I think they have it in Europe and France they have it uh, in, in Italy Europeans. wherever you have a European aristocracy I'm sure you still have it I don't think about it in America they have Americans much more interested in you know certain politicians or celebrities the celebrities have become the, the posh class that's fine I mean I read your book over the summer and there's a scene in it where, where your protagonist goes goes to one of these parties and yes. she sort of seems quite it's quite awkward which is I imagine what lots of people must feel at these things I mean yes. are they quite awkward in a way yeah totally I mean I remember the what I based that that scene on was was obviously me going to, to torture garden I remember sitting at the bar having this glass of Prosecco with my friend and someone came up and he had a dog lead on and like sort of leather shorts and he handed me 
the lead and said, hello, I'm, I can't remember his name, but I'm so-and-so, and I will be your slave for the night. So I'm going, oh, no, no, I'm, so, I'm all right. I don't need a slave. And my friend Tash took the lead and went, don't be so ridiculous. Get down on your hands and knees. And this guy was thrilled, and he got down on his hands and his knees, and Tash was like, come on, soft, put your feet on his back. I was like, I can't put my feet on his back. And then she, come on, don't be such a wimp. So we sat there having our Prosecco with my boots very gingerly on this poor man's back. And it, yeah, it, you have to sort of, we have finished you the Prosecco and got a bit more involved. Yeah, and then we sort of well, didn't join in fully, but got a bit more involved. But it is excruciating if you haven't been. I mean, it's fascinating. I say to a lot of friends, it beats a Friday night in the pub. It's, you know, interesting well, to go. But that's what it is. It's kind of sociologically mm, interesting. Yeah, the totally. last thing these things are about are sex. Mm. In a way, the sex is completely ir- irrelevant. It's the theatre. It's the ambiance. Yes, exactly. That's what people are going They're going for the experience of the whole environment. If you want interest in sex, you can get that in you know other places. Yeah, it's sort of like a, almost like an interactive punch drunk you know performance. Do you know what I mean? You can go and you can watch, or you can just sit and have your prosecco, yeah. or you can join in if you want. It's that kind of thing. So it's not actually threatening remotely because you can do what you want. And the person who was your footstool, I mean, do you have any idea who he was or what kind of where no, he came from? There or? was a, he had a friend who was also standing chatting to us. I mean, again, I have to say, not I don't think posh. He said he was a geography teacher from South London, so I don't. That's I mean, he might have been. But that's I the thing about all, all the these events is they're not full of you know posh people or exotic strange people. They're no. the most ordinary mm. you know civil servants, bus drivers. Mm. I mean, they're not you know not what you would expect. I feel like behind closed doors at big houses, say Longleat, for example, yes. you might get you know an element of all that's amongst coming. most but, friends but exactly it wouldn't be anything so vulgar for posh people just to go to a paid event like you said that just wouldn't happen Cosmo and Sophia thank you for joining and that's all for this week you can pick up this week's issue to read all of the pieces discussed as well as Robert Peston's diary Robert Jackman's expose on Britain's legal cannabis trade and Jane Kelly on cats going vegan Plus, we've got a special offer for our podcast listeners. You can get 12 weeks for just £12, plus a free John Lewis voucher worth £20 when you subscribe. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher to get the deal. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week. This podcast is sponsored by Merion Global Investors, bringing together the art and science of investing.